Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I have to say, I'm really excited to bring this show to everyone because it was kind of an, I don't know, not an unexpected show. It was a little bit. It was. Um, basically, what happened was we got uh, contacted by a listener of the podcast who incidentally found the podcast simply by searching the UK hunting, I think, on, uh, on iTunes. On iTunes, yeah. And found the show, started listening. And contacted us uh, about one or two things. But one thing in particular was uh, a friend of his, uh, Mike Day, who is a filmmaker. And he thought he would be a good person to speak to because of the kind of films that he's been making. So we got in contact with Mike. And he, just by pure coincidence, is premier or doing the UK premiere of his latest film, which is The Islands and the Whales, in Edinburgh this friday which is the day after this podcast goes out which is friday the 17th is it all? uh one second i'll have to look at the the calendar behind me because uh completely forgot to look at the date okay well daryl's gonna check the date uh in the meantime the film itself it is in fact the 17th it is friday the 17th so oh, i was right yeah um, friday the 17th of june 2016 because obviously this podcast is out forever, so we don't want people getting confused. <laughs> if you want to watch that, uh, last time we checked, there was still tickets. Yep. So after listening to this podcast, you might very well want to go and watch it, especially if you live not too far away. Um, it's the story about um, the Faroese on the Faroe Islands and their interaction with their history and their heritage and basically what they do on a day-to-day basis. And the, one of the, the focal points is the whale hunting that goes on there. Um, there's a lot more to it, but we won't go into that now because you're about to listen to a podcast. So, some people may have seen the, the whale hunting on Facebook because it, it appears nearly every single year in the news feeds in regards to stopping whale hunting yeah, in so the Faroe Islands. But it, it is not just about whale hunting. It's There's so many more aspects. There's... Uh, uh, pollution that goes into it. There's also hunting uh, birds on the island, and it goes into tradition. And uh, yeah, it's a really intriguing film. And the trailer right now, you can if you Google the islands and the whales on Vimeo, on Vimeo, then you will be able to watch the trailer. For well, it. we're going to have the trailer on the show. Yeah, yeah, but people won't be able to watch it. Though. Well, they will because it's on YouTube as well. If oh, they, okay, yeah. If, yes. if, if you do actually watch the podcast, then you'll be able to watch part of the trailer. But you will be able to, after we finish speaking at the beginning, we're going to play the trailer. Uh, part of the trailer is in Faroese. Mm-hmm. So just bear with it. Part of it is in English as well. Uh, but the music is absolutely beautiful. And you'll still get a feel. You'll still for get it. a real feel for the film. It's only, I think, three minutes long. And if you're really intrigued once listening to the trailer, then you have to head over to the YouTube, our YouTube channel and, and check out the trailer. Me and Byron were fortunate enough, like we're very happy that we were allowed to see the film before its UK release. Yeah, we were very privileged uh, to be in a position. Mike sent us uh, the actual film bef- before its release, actually just a day or two after its world premiere. Uh, which was uh, really cool to have the opportunity to watch it. And it's a tremendous film. Um, we will, at a later date, when it becomes available, uh, either to buy or watch online in the month... In... I believe it's going to be on TV. Oh, yes, it might very well be yep. on TV. So when, when it is, we will let our listeners know so that you can watch it if you don't have a chance to see it. Because we do try and keep you up to date with our previous, our guests. previous guests and, and what they're up to. But this is 
I really enjoyed the film. I mean, I all I'd seen was the trailer, and then I watched it, and it really took me by surprise. And it's such it's a stunning a, piece of filming. And it's an incredible very story, thought-provoking film because very. the it draws you in from so many different aspects on you're feeling sorry for the whales, you're feeling sorry for the people, and then you're also, obviously, the actual facts. Mm. Then you're thinking about pollution. the environment. Yeah, the environmental impact that is going on in the world. It really does make you think about everything uh, that's going on. It's actually a a pretty groundbreaking film. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Mike has just won the Emerging International Filmmaker Award. And Um, he is a Scottish filmmaker. He is indeed. Um, so he's he's home homegrown. Yeah, homegrown, and you'll get to see him in his home turf. Well, I don't know if it's his home turf, but you'll get to see him in Edinburgh this Friday. This Friday. Um, to other news before we get to that. Well, actually, before we get to other news, um, that is not the only thing that we have to bring you no, on the podcast. You've got two things on the podcast. Now, I wasn't part of this, so I'm going to hand over to Daryl because at the end we have another guest. So we had Laura Bingham on a few weeks ago now, actually, and we're bringing it to you now. And she is currently cycling uh, pretty much the whole of South America on one incredible journey. And she's doing it with absolutely no money whatsoever. And I mean, I wouldn't actually want to be in her shoes. She's, it looks like an absolutely incredible journey. Uh, you can follow her on Facebook and on Instagram and all of those details on the podcast later on. They'll also be in the description. But it is an incredible journey to be on and a very dangerous one of that. They've had uh, Cho, who was there. She was cycling with, with a short amount of time, um, was hit by a car. And then her... And he was Ed Stafford's guide during walking the amazon yeah. and uh, laura's fiance is ed stafford and he was cycling with them and i think in a matter of days he was run over by a truck yeah uh, so it's it's an incredible journey it's an incredible story uh which is not over yet because she's still no, it's, doing it's it. not over no and uh, we hope to bring you another installment live because i was away but daryl recorded this with laura over a Skype call in the middle of her adventure, basically. Uh, yeah, and there's one thing, thank you very much, because now I've just remembered speaking to her abroad. We apologize for this week because the connection on both our guests was not the best. No. So it was dropping left, right, and center uh, for both our guests. Uh, Laura was more excusable because I'm pretty sure she was in Peru or, or Bolivia or something at the time. But, but Mike was actually in the UK. He though. was in the UK. So, uh, But I think you've managed to edit most of that. Uh, I you? have. So it should be seamless, seamless listening <laughs> for everyone. Um, but yeah, that's that's what happens when you're speaking to people from all over the world. Uh, you've just got to bear and grin it, but it is going to be a good show as as usual, as it uh, always is. I, now, I wanted to bring a bit of funny news. Oh, okay. You, you go for that and then I'll, I'll bring a bit I of saw, news. I saw this go. in the news last week that a bike thief had been lassoed by a cowboy in a car park in America. <laughs> awesome. That's that. I, <laughs> I wish they had... Vid- it, it was a video. No, there was just a picture and the bike thief was on the ground and the guy was on the uh, the, the horse and the lasso was around him. <laughs> only he was lying in, on the only in America would that happen. <laughs> A good story there. It is a good story. Um, for those people who are regular listeners, you will know that this uh, show is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports, and we will be on their stand at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust Game Fair, which most people just know as Scottish the Schoon Palace. Scottish Schoon Palace Game Fair. Yep. Um, which is going to be the first, second, third of July. Which we have attended for probably about 10 years now. Yeah, so, yeah or like half my life I think yeah. I've attended. So they're going to be there. If you don't know about them, but you've heard us mention them uh, on the podcast, 
um, as the supporter of it, then go and visit them. You are, we'll be there as well on their um, tent at the game fair if you're going to be there and you can have a chat to them about what they do. Uh, we do give you snippets uh, every so often about things that they've actually been up to. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, a good organization to understand you know, what they're doing to help support um, shooting and, and hunting and fishing and, and country pursuits in general. They're going to be on Gunmakers Row. So that's where to find them. Gunmakers Row at the Schoon Palace Game Fair. Uh, other news, it was recently the National Ladies Shooting Day, which actually uh, my other half was in attendance at uh, this weekend just passed. And it was multiple events across the whole country and there were thousands of women taking part, which is brilliant. I saw the pictures. <clears throat> yeah, it, was. It's, it looks like a great day was had uh, by everybody wherever you were in the country taking part. Um, it is organized by Victoria Knowles Locks, and she is part of the Shotgun and Chelsea Bun Club. Um, so they kind of put the whole thing together. And yeah, which great in day. fact would be a good person to get on it. At yeah, some point. we might have to see if we can uh, speak to her. Yeah. And last thing, also along the shotgun thread, this weekend, which is the 18th of June at Clooney Clays in Fife in Scotland. Uh, there is a day being held by Beth Johnson as a part of Femmes Fatales. And it's also it's another day basically to encourage uh, f- females into field sports and have a chance to go and shoot some clays. It's uh, open to everybody from novices to advanced, uh, advanced shooters. You're going to get 50 clays with an instructor um, showing you and giving you some, some hints and helping you actually hit the clays. And afterwards, there's going to be a barbecue, and I know that there is a shed load of really cool prizes. Yeah, there is. As well. There's always good prizes. Um, if you want to know more about that, we're going to share well, we all already the have details. It. We already have. We already we? have. Okay, yeah. but we'll look at the podcast Facebook page because all the information on how to uh, attend, if you want to go. Oh, uh, fact, I was just going to say. Now we know that the guys that li- and girls that watch on YouTube, not my, a lot of them, don't actually have Facebook. Uh, hence why a lot of them I think do watch on YouTube but we have a new website which is www.thepacebrothers.com and that now has just our Into the Wilderness show and our podcast so it's a one stop shop it's a one stop shop so you can find all the podcasts in a list that you can listen to on the website or you can download them all the links are there for the iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube um, and TuneIn Radio and yeah it's it's all there but what we've started to do is that any useful documents that we've talked about during the show it's only actually started from the air, the air rifle show but continuing on from there it will all be there so anyone can access uh, any particular documents that we we might have yeah so the for the air for the air gun show which was the last one all the regulation that you need to be aware of if you own air guns in scotland is now in a document and that information was uh, kindly provided by sax but uh, the sponsor of this. if you go on the website we've also just started uh, a blog as well all our pictures are up there so i mean if you're interested in what we're up to not just the podcast and and you don't have facebook then the website is definitely the place to yeah, bookmark it. And yeah, to check it out and visit it. And we'll be putting lots of uh, different stuff up there as well. We've got lots planned this year, mm-hmm. uh, not in just regard to the podcast, but with, with our series. some pretty cool expeditions coming yeah, up. Yeah, some too. good expeditions coming up. The last thing, I think, 
before we actually bring the interview is what people have a chance to win. And we'll tell you how you win it at the end at of the show. some point during the podcast. It might not be the end of the show. Uh, okay. Yeah. It might not enough. be, but it will be at some point during the podcast. Uh, this week, you can win uh, Bushnell Outdoors head torch and incidentally Byron has actually been using we have more than one of these uh Byron has been using the other one uh that's really good for a wee while now and uh I'm, I'm quite impressed with that actually yeah it's for, got, uh, as we're gonna make um I'll make a small film about this in the next day or two so you can see how it operates and the features that it has yeah for those people watching on YouTube Daryl is holding it up to the camera right now um, but there will be pictures of it on Facebook yes as well for uh, and everyone Instagram. else yeah, but you can, and Instagram as well, you can win that. So, uh, today on this show, just before we went on the show, this is why you need to keep up to date with all our stuff, guys and girls, because we just gave away a pair of um, ear uh, electronic uh, cold, ear cold well ear live on Facebook. Yeah, we did. So those people who were tuned in had the chance and all they had to do was answer a question about a previous podcast. And we had loads of answers come all in in one go, but... Yeah, we, we had someone in first, and that's it. So we'll post that out this week. So yeah, Bushnell headlamp. That's what you have a chance to win this uh, week. All you got to do is listen to the show. It'll be very simple, and we'll tell you how you enter. <laughs> we, we I, t- I just remembered that we've actually had a few people going. When's the next show? When's the next show? It literally as it's released. It's out every two weeks, guys. We really wish we could bring you more and more uh, of the show, uh, but we're giving you as much as we can at this moment. Yeah, in time. we keep getting requests for weekly shows, but uh, at the minute we it's don't. Quite a lot ha- of pressure. We don't have the. <laughs> we don't quite have the time for that. But yeah. Oh. And before we met, before we forget, episode three of our series is a way to be out. Oh yeah, that's important. That's very important. So episode three of the series is a way to come out. It's uh, we are in Loch Ness. Loch Ness, so don't miss it. It's pretty wet. It's pretty miserable, but it's a good episode. Yeah, it's a good story. And if you are listening to the podcast, because we have so many podcast listeners, and you have no idea what Daryl was just talking about, yeah, we have an online TV series called Free. Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness. Free. free. Just type in. In fact, you can just Google Pace Brothers now and it's actually one of the first things to go. But uh, if you type Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness, same same as this um, podcast is called, uh, then our series comes up and it's free. On YouTube. YouTube and it's free for anyone to watch. Uh, They range from 30 minutes to 40 minute shows. And it is telling our story as it is. It's not, I mean, it's as simple as that, that. We're not adding things in that, we don't do what yeah. it is just what we do we've had a lot of great feedback if you haven't seen it definitely go and check it out um episode one and two are up like daryl said episode three will be out in a matter of days after this podcast is released. they're on youtube and vimeo yep. you can download it on vimeo if you want to watch it offline please enjoy the rest of the show enjoy the rest of the show Oh, 
In other countries, it will not be allowed to, to sell meat that contaminated with mercury. So if we don't come with our advices now and saying you should be take care, it will be too late. I see our mission in the pharaohs to document the bill we had to pay, that we had to change the culture in order to protect the health of our children. I spent my whole career walking into the middle of problems. I will get down in the water between a knife and a whale. We will interfere. We will not allow this to happen. If the anti-whaling activists had not been here, the consumption of the island whale would be less than it is today. Färgen blev dolka åt andra så det här borde ganska vara barometer till resten av kläderna. Mike, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. I know you've been very busy the last couple of weeks flying all over the world. Where have you been and what have you been doing? Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I've been uh, premiering the Islands and the Whales in Hot Dogs in Toronto um, at the Canadian Documentary Festival there. And we then went to San Francisco to do the US premiere there. Brilliant. And you've got a premiere in Scotland very soon. Yeah, and we're taking it home to Edinburgh at the International Festival there on the 17th of June. It's our European premiere. Um, we're very excited because we have the Doctor and uh, one of the main characters coming over for that from the Faroe Islands and uh, also a band from the Faroes coming to play there. Oh, tremendous. So, yeah. uh, you, you, were, you were kind enough to let um, Daryl and I have a look at the, the entire film. Well, we just watched it yesterday. For those people who haven't uh, seen the trailer, and we're going to put the link to the, the trailer of the film in the description for this podcast, can you just tell me what the, the premise of the, the film is all about? So this film is about the Faroese whale hunting community. And up, up there, they, they, they still hunt seabirds and whales. But unfortunately, environmental pressures are um, putting these traditions under a lot of strain. In fact, they're very likely to end soon. The, the, the bird populations are, are vanishing due to the collapsing of their food chain and that their bellies are full of plastic. Mm. The whales have been re rendered uh, toxic due to the amount of mercury and PCB that's in, in all of the seas now. Uh, so it, it started off for me as a film about the hunting traditions in some ways, but very quickly became a story that affected us all. Mm. Mm. And the, in terms of planning the project and deciding that you know this is this is a story I want to tell and I want to capture it on film, how on earth did you go about that? I mean, not only are the Faroe Islands miles away from anything, but actually being able to to go into that community to be able to tell the stories. How did how did you go about that? 
Well, um, the way I discovered a story, I was out in Sulisker, which is a, a rock north of the Isle of Lewis, filming the only men in Europe or the European Union who are allowed to hunt seabirds for meat. There's the 10 men in the Isle of Lewis who go out there every year for, for two weeks and hunt these birds. The only other place that d does this is the, is the Faroe Islands. So and it was when I was making that film that I met a bunch of uh, Faroe Islanders in Stornoway. So the inn on it, if you like, was, was the seabird hunting angle and I, I then ended up a year later in the Faroe Islands and by chance it was the the yearly meeting of the Pilot Whale Hunting Association where we had the, the government, the sheriffs and the, the hunters in, uh, in one room so it was very much make or break whether we would get permission to do it and I was going to show five minutes of the gannet hunting film and uh, they ended up watching the whole thing and running their AGM over, and at the end of it, they said, "Yes, come and come and come and film it." I think fundamentally, the filming is allowing the audience to make judgment for themselves of something which is maybe more objective than other coverage of these of these hunts. So they were pleased, even if people hated it, that it would be covered um, that way and documented that way. So. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, if you when you actually watch the film, it's there is no judgment in the film. I mean, it's all up to you. You de you decide, which I guess is why you, you've the, captured what's happening yeah. without imparting any any sort of bias in it, which has always or is quite often done when documentaries like that are put together. I would suggest it's very easy to focus in on the blood in the water but for me we were all putting far worse in the water and that wasn't to say that you can't condemn the pilot whale hunting but um, there was a bigger story in there which I was very subjectively angry about which is what we're all doing to the natural world. Can, can you elaborate, I know it's dealt with in, in quite a lot of detail actually within the film itself but can you elaborate for the listeners on that a bit and the issues with what's not only in the birds, but in the whales, and by virtue of that, what's in the sea, and maybe just bring in a bit of discussion with the actual doctor that's in the film, because obviously that's a key uh, key and very important part. So one of the challenges with, with this film is that there are so many different intertwining stories, so there's such an intersection of so many different environmental stories that just crept into the, the community there, because it didn't set out to make a, an environmentalist film per se, so um, the, the whales, for example, have very high levels of mercury and PCB in them, which are two very separate problems. PCB pollution is actually reduced massively because those substances are, are, are banned in a, in a different way. Mercury is, is a huge problem and it's increasing. The levels um, are, are, uh, are meant to double in the coming decades if, if nothing is done. The, the half-life of mercury, however, is six weeks, unlike PCBs, which is 10 years. So there is potentially uh, a happy ending with the mercury in that if you prevent the emissions, the, the seas will return to normal within a relatively short period of time. But if it carries on as it does at the moment, tuna, for example, can be around half the level of the whales. And if the seas are set to double the mercury, it doesn't take much to figure out that we're all going to be in the situation of the threes in a few generations' time. So from that sense they were very much uh, a canary in the mine for us all. Um, you then have the situation of the birds where uh, there's some mystery to some of the aspects of 
of what's happening to them, but certainly environmental changes are the cause of their decline. There's the, the shifting Gulf Stream uh, and the warming of the waters there has altered the food chain. And on top of that, many of them have 20 to 30 pieces of plastic in their stomachs. Uh, so you can see birds that have different food sources are faring to different, different degrees. Uh, but the, the population plummet is dramatic. 200,000 puffins used to be hunted. Sorry, Mike. We uh, we lo we lost you there. We we it's you would think that the internet in London would be a little bit better than uh, say all on the other side of the world in New Zealand where we also do interviews. But you were talking about how they used to hunt two hundred thousand puffins uh, in the Faroe Isles uh, and how that's declined. Yeah, it's I mean it's declined to almost nothing now. Most of the pharaohs have banned the hunting of puffins. The, the puffins arrive every year and simply don't breed because there is no food for them. Um, the food chain has has altered. So uh, there's there's a very clear, uh, serious, tangible effect of of, of environmental changes. There, there's uh, the guillemot population. When they started counting them in the 60s, there was around 300,000 breeding pairs. There are now less than 80,000. So it's it's a rapid, clear decline uh, caused by the, the changes there. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there is. I mean, you you already said it. There was a lot of dynamics that go on uh, in the film, the, the documentary that you've captured. Not only the decline as a result of environmental factors, but there's this this thread throughout the whole film of the tradition and the history involved in in what the people, uh, what the Faroese do, and I, you can see that this conflict that arises between if we go back to talking about whales, about wanting to to hunt the whales, and it made obviously perfect sense why they have done that historically because they're it's a fantastic food source for them but the potential damage that they're doing to themselves because of the mercury levels can you uh, elaborate uh, for those people who don't know about the the effects of mercury what the issues are with that and eating that meat there, there had been plenty documentation of the uh, effects of large dose exposure to mercury, such as in Minamata, where it, it causes very dramatic fetal malformations and a lot of very clear and horrific problems. But there had never been a study of long-term low-dose exposure. And the doctor studying the pharaohs has been running for 30 years now and has tested thousands of children uh, in the pharaohs and, and tracked them all through their lives and seen those who were exposed to higher amounts uh, and the effect that, that was having. And it showed that by the age of 14, the exposure was causing uh, a permanent cognitive impairment in some. And it might be subtle. It might be the equivalent of a couple of points of IQ. Uh, the study showed that for every doubling of mercury in a young child, for example, they could be one IQ point less or a month uh, behind in early childhood development. So there were tangible effects from this. It was also linked to uh, heart problems and also Parkinson's and the, the, the Faroe Islands has double the rate of Parkinson's. Some babies there were being born with 40 times the safe level of mercury in their bodies. So it, the whale did contain uh, quite a high level but it's only double that of tuna as I said. So you could have two meals of tuna here and you would be in the same situation as, as they are. But as the doctor says in the film, there's no broken arms or anything acute or so dramatic. So it's, it's very difficult to uh, 
you're not going to have everyone giving it up overnight, but he he points to the fact that the now the umbilical cord blood tests that all the mothers having babies in the pharaohs are having, or at least most of them, um, they show a massive reduction in mercury intake in pregnant women particularly. So um, people are reacting to his advice. Mm. I mean, how the impression I got was uh, from the film was that the the younger generations are sort of sitting back and thinking about it, whereas you know the guys who are now in uh, uh, guys and and, uh, and women who are now in their sixties, they're almost sort of discarding it, saying you know we we've done it for this long and I'm fine. That was kind of the impression I got. I think across the board, um, the coming of uh, freezers and pizza and all of the modern food that we have, they have everything there that we have uh, means that there are other options and alternatives. Some people are not going to be eating whale twice a week or being as reliant on it as a, as a, a primary food source. But um, I think everyone across the board is eating less of it than they used to. Uh, and that's, that's due to societal pressures as much as it is to do with the pollution, perhaps. Uh, the younger generation in the last few years, as I see it, have been fired up a lot more by the outside pressures criticizing them. Mm. Yeah. So there's almost an increase in determination to continue the tradition to defend it against outside criticism. When, when I was uh, watching the film earlier, uh, yesterday actually, I really, well, from what I took away from it, was that the youngsters on the island weren't fully invested in in the the traditions or really that interested in the hunting and when sea shepherd arrived it really got them thinking again and a little bit angry and everybody kind of got together all, all the the younger generation because someone from an outside part of the world was telling them what to do i mean is that kind of the feeling that you got on the ground when you were you were there yeah from the the younger generation don't have to do it anymore for survival, whereas their grandparents, it was a seriously important source of food. So th that aspect had definitely changed. Um, and then over the years that I've been there, the presence of Sea Shepherd shifted. The first year in 2011, there were boats there. They were there for two months, and um, basically the whales were just left to swim free. They stopped hunting them while they were there, knowing it was a short-term sacrifice and yeah. the whales can be hunted all year round and in fact the sea shepherd that year left right before the fulmer catching season when there's a lot of boats on the water and uh, that's one of the most likely times just because there's more people on the water the whales are spotted and sure enough that's what happened and that hunt that you see in the film is is um is the result of that but i, I mean i i would say that any culture that has an outside force coming to it and telling it its way of life is wrong is going to have uh, it's going to create resistance in that community um if, uh, people up there i was compared it to if uh, uh an iranian battleship came up the thames and uh, picketed our our pig farms and said these animals are intelligent we don't eat them we don't think that you should the reaction would be people probably lining the streets with bacon rolls so 
There was, I saw a, a reaction in some of the younger Faroese guys who weren't really caring about whale hunting, but would certainly defend the right to do it against an outside force. So it, it did seem to her. There has been an increase in numbers on the beaches as well, as well as more people up there think that it's, it's increased the interest in the hunting. Can you just describe what it was like being obviously you were documenting it but by virtue of the fact you were documenting it you were part of the actual hunting of the whales can you just talk through that experience because i mean i i've hunted a lot of animals all over the world and i am i would definitely class myself as a hunter and i can these guys are hunters and they do it for the very best reasons which if you take it back far enough was that was their survival and uh, my my impression was across everything they were would endeavour to do it in a in a sustainable way, but that doesn't change the fact that when I was watching it, it was fairly difficult to it watch. Is, it it's, is quite hard it's to quite watch. Quite yeah. I, I mean, I, I found it as, a bit hard as to be both honest. of us hunt, and and this is the we talk about this loads and loads. It's distinguishing animals, different animals. You know, why is an animal on land? Uh, more important than something in the sea or vice versa you know what why is it because it's an intelligent animal more important than um we use the example of of fish quite a lot you know people get all up in arms about elephant is a good example but a few people care about a particular species of fish Mm. but it might actually be more endangered but but, yeah so my my point with this was it was was actually quite quite difficult to watch to, to watch yeah, they're large, uh, beautiful mammals, charismatic megafauna, and and we do have some. It, it it's a it's a very um, brutal and and bloody slaughter, and it's not nice. And it, it, killing any animals is not nice to to watch. Um, and I think one of the points I wanted to capture it so unflinchingly was that so many of us are so disconnected with where meat comes from and the realities of, of, of what it is, um, that, that in turn might cause a lot of overconsumption and the pollution that is ending up in the whales for that matter. Uh, it, it's very shocking to see that much blood um, in, in the water. I think if you, if you, if you, if you compare it to the abattoir, it, it's, it's maybe equally as disturbing, mm-hmm. but uh, we, we keep that behind closed doors. Yeah, in a shed. It's different, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, I think from the, the one, the, the, the particular aspect of it that I, I looked at and I, I felt uncomfortable about was mm-hmm. when uh, the whales are being driven in against the, sort of the, the shoreline and they put the hooks in them to drag them up mm-hmm. well, so they can get in close to dispatch them. Mm. Uh, there was that particular aspect for me that I just thought, yeah. But then you you have to you really have to sit back and try and look at it objectively and look at it in the grand scheme of things, just as you've said, and everything else that we consume to survive as humans. Yeah, it, there have been a lot of attempts there to improve the hunting methods. They've they've spent a lot of time developing uh, weapons to dispatch them as quickly as possible. And the hooks have changed from being spiked to rounded. But um, if you're against killing whales, all of that is uh, fairly inconsequential. Uh, But it is brutal and it can be chaotic and it can go wrong. They're large animals and 
it's a difficult thing to manage. So it doesn't always go as planned, that's, that's for sure. I mean, we, we had uh, one hunt where we had, a, we had a microphone in the water and, and some of the hunters actually listened to the whales and they were very upset to hear them screaming. And it is, it is a very uh, harrowing sound. So. Yeah. Uh, I, there was a, a few points I, I wanted to bring up because I found it quite strange. When they had the, the press conference with Sea Shepherd, I'm assuming it was on their boat or something, and there, there were the ferries, they were in there, some of the fishermen and the hunters, and they were asking questions. And the answers that the people on the panel of Sea Shepherd were giving for me, weren't really satisfactory. They're pretty weak. They were very weak answers. Uh, I mean, one, for example, they're saying, why do you need to eat whales? Why don't you eat more vegetables? And the answer to that is, well, we can't really grow any here. Look at the land. I mean, that's a pretty obvious thing. That's like telling someone on the Isle of Skye or the West Coast, you need to grow more vegetables. I mean, stuff really doesn't grow that well there. Um, and I thought it was a very good point that the, the Faroese guys brought, uh, brought up by saying, well, okay, yeah, we can now get stuff it brought in, imported, but that's causing more pollution across the planet because, I mean, the Faroe Islands is not close to anything at all, uh, which I, I thought interesting. And the second thing I thought interesting, and this goes back to us talking about why is one animal more important than another, was when he one of the guys said, if we stop hunting whales tomorrow and we started importing beef from America, would you then be happy and leave us alone? And the answer to that was, well, we're a marine conservation. So we don't care. So we basically. don't care. <laughs> I mean, what was your, what was your take on, on the local interaction um, with Sea Shepherd? I, I thought that their questioning was at, and, and uh, the actual questions that they asked was quite impressive because I think they knew that the answers they were going to get back looked fairly fairly weak for being captured on film, certainly. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cynicism locally on why they are there, because those whales are not um, a critically endangered species. There's, they're data deficient how many there are, but there's certainly no evidence that they're specifically endangered uh, So because of that, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of skepticism on why the pharaohs are chosen for the campaign where there are endangered species elsewhere that might need more help. Mm. Um, the Sea Shepherd's answer to that is wherever they're, they go, they're told that they should be somewhere else. Uh, the, the, for me, the pharaohs uh, needed to uh, do this on their own terms. That they, 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 they're only found out that the meat is toxic uh, a relatively short time ago, and it, it's it's something that they're not going to give up because an outside group tells them to. So there was a there was a disconnection. It was like ships passing in the night, really. A lot of the debate between the sides. It's, it's simply yeah, very very uh, disparate points of view there. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it's two completely, completely unrelated aspects. Sea Shepherd actually don't really care about the humans dying of mercury poisoning. They just want the whales not to be hunted. Whereas uh, the Faroese, that's part of their tradition, but now they are aware that it might not be good to consume it in the quantities that they were eating. It was two dynamics going on. Sea Shepherd didn't necessarily... 
Sea Shepherd didn't really care about humans potentially being poisoned by mercury by eating the whales. Their only concern was do not hunt whales. And from what you're, you're telling me, it's not even as if it's, you know, they're particularly endangered and it is sustainable. So it's a funny conflict between these, you know, the, these two two aspects, whereas the locals realize that they probably shouldn't eat as much as they have been because of the effects of that. Whereas on the other hand, they have people telling them you shouldn't be hunting them at all for reasons which don't f uh, fully or can't fully be, be justified, maybe. Yeah, there's two very different debates going on there. Um, and to quote the people from the island themselves, so the, the doctor um, says that his life is made more difficult by the presence of outside intervention, that the health message that he's trying to give people that this whale is toxic and bad for your children is, is uh, it, it, the, the activists are, are distracting from that message because it sounds like an anti-whaling message. Mm. Um, so he he believes that there would be less whale eaten today if the activists had not been there. That's interesting. It's kind of spur, yeah, I guess it is. It's spurring the people to go. You know, you we won't be told. You, what to we, do. Yeah, we won't be told what to do. So we're gonna we're gonna double our efforts basically. Mm. To just move away from the hunting of whales to the hunting of the, the seabirds. One of the most incredible things I think I've ever seen on film was hunting of the birds. Off the cliff tops. It absolutely terrified me when you've got this guy right next to the edge of a cliff with a massive long net. And I'm just thinking, how is he not going to fall off the, this cliff? Ah, uh, yeah, the introduction, yeah. The hunting of adult fumers on yeah. the cliffs of the north, yeah. That was the first frames of the film I shot, actually, that with the with the boy on the on the cliffs but just catching them with these giant nets by perching on the edge of a cliff and literally swooping them up as they're flying past i mean if you told people oh you know what we're going to do today we're going to go and catch the seabirds we're going to go sit on the edge of a cliff and scoop them up with a net people would think you were mad and yet this is what they this is what they were doing and and they, and they got so young, young 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 kids with kids. them as well you know uh ring their necks behind them and mm. what an incredible thing to see yeah, I mean, I think that that scene is like a pure vision into into the old world there, but also our own roots. We used to do that all over the British Isles and across Europe as well. That was a a normal staple food source. Mm. It's it's the last remnants of it there. Um, and just uh, maybe just describe the the filming that you did at night where they were going down over the the cliff tops on these giant ropes as thick as as thick as my arm you 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 call it abseiling but it wasn't really it, abseiling, it, was it, it? it is but it's not what you would picture in your head as abseiling because it is effectively uh, a fishing rope that you would attach it to the jetty with and that they tie it around their waist and then go and then into the darkness on you go it's a 30-year-old rope, uh, a great leap of faith backwards into the darkness. It's, uh, Did you say it's 30 years old, the rope? Do they not change it? Yeah. Uh, no, apparently, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It might be. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy to find out when it's broken, though. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, uh, I have to say, though, coming up is more terrifying than going backwards into the darkness because you can't see the drop there. Um, we went down there. We thought we were going down for one hour onto the ledges. Apparently, we're the first foreigners ever to go on those particular cliffs on that mm -hmm. hunt. And um, 
the sound recordist that I had with me then, he, he didn't know that he was going off. I was prepared that I hadn't, that was it, it was going to happen, but he found out at the last minute. And uh, we both went down there and ended up staying down for about eight or nine hours on this ledge. It's about one meter wide, uh, covered in, in birds' nests. Um, uh, unbelievable. And they were, they, were, they were capturing young gannets there. That's what they were doing. Young gannets, yeah, just before they can fly. So they go at night because if they went down during the day, they would, they would fall off the cliff because um, they try and run away but where at night I think they're, they're, they're drowsier so they can they can grab them and the adult birds can fly off um, and that species is doing very well gannets are one of the the, uh, the species that have been advantaged by the warming waters because they eat mackerel and the mackerel numbers have increased there because of the warming waters so they're that is one of the sustainable hunts so they are they they gauge the the amount that they're taking off by the population that's there. Um. Yeah. 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 Are, are they would from your aspect when you're there? Are they quite conscious about any form of monitoring of of numbers and how much they should be taking, or is it just like we know from years and years and years that this is the rough number that we take every single year? Um, I think they can see how many chicks there are, so they know how many they can take uh, on that. That island is more conservation-minded than other places, perhaps. Um, but there are, I mean, you see the character in the film, he, he, he listened when he heard, but he, he simply didn't know that the birds that he was hunting, some of the species were endangered and that their numbers had gone down as much as they had. Mm. And I think if anyone can show the species there is endangered and there is a conservation issue that the hunting should be stopped and probably would be stopped swiftly. Um, but I think a lot of this is happening quite rapidly that we're catching up with the realities of what we're doing to nature. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, the, the other dimension of the, the whole film and yet it, it sits there underlying throughout all the little stories that are being told is that they are being affected by things that are actually out with their control because it's not what they've done that is resulting in mercury in the whales and the reduction of uh, uh, different seabirds' numbers because of the food that they eat. It's from outside influences that they, they have no say over and no control. And I could, I could sense that sort of almost slight anger in it. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, they can't. They haven't been able to control, say, the sea shepherds going there any more than they have been able to control the mercury going there. And there's, there's a, there is a feeling of the, they're the victims of this outside forces, these external pressures on them. And it's true. Although they're as much part of the modern world as we are. They have cars and they, they partake in that modernity as much as anyone. So, I was amazed uh, to see, although I, I was aware of this across the world, uh, when they were cleaning the gannets and they were sending samples away to, I think it was a university in Denmark, if I'm not mistaken, the plastic, the amount of plastic yeah, I mean, actually this, in the this stomach. Is, this is a big problem now. In our seas. And there were so many things I saw when I was filming this that were just so disturbing, that it, especially seeing it there in such a pristine place. I've sailed around Scotland a lot and caught fish and wondered you know, if they had oil in them or they were polluted in some way. But when you're that far north, you, you think it's the most pristine place on earth. And for the seabirds to be full of plastic or covered in oil, and 
it's really it's a disturbing fact that even if that those far corners are, have been so uh, damaged by us that we really need to take stock of this. It's a very that I yeah. um I was actually on I think it was BBC Radio Four only a week ago and we've actually mentioned this a few months ago about the the micro beads in mm. soaps mm. and stuff saying that is one of the biggest threats we have to our seas right now is the micro beads and they should be banned immediately basically across the world. Oh, we have a very poor reactive uh, system to to these pollutants and. One of the one of the things happening at the moment, the UNEP uh, in the United Nations is is holding sides to try and ratify the Minamata Convention on Mercury to make global emissions uh, compulsory. because we can see now the damage that that it's doing, but we have this reactive policy of allowing heavy industry and uh, allowing pollutants to enter the food chain rather than having a precautionary principle of, of, of waiting to see what they do, mm. we, we react. I mean, the, the, the EPA in America, for example, is only le- uh, legislating against particular contaminants once someone sues someone. So it's entirely reactive. We don't, and our attitude should change as a result of these longitudinal studies, which are only coming to fruition now. I mean, the, the studies take decades and these pollutants have only been in the environment for maybe 50 years or 40 years. So there's a very clear cause and effect to using the seas as a dumping ground. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you've got potentially a few million people a day washing themselves with micro bits of plastic all going down the drain, and then it's all ending up in the rivers and the seas, there's going to be an effect. But for some reason, Mm. I mean... It's, how long? Right. Do, how long do they need to take to take well, action? I guess it's as Mike says. Once you see the, once you see the result of it, then people start to take but, notice instead of actually. Yeah, I know, but I mean, the Mike's point of we should be preventing it before it even happens. As soon as that was even invented, that the micro technology in in microplastics, they should have gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on, hang on a minute. This is actually going to cause some form of effect because you you know you you're not allowed to shred plastic bags up and dump them in the river and it's a, it's almost the same difference it's just slightly bigger <laughs> right but if you're a large corporation then uh, it's, it's easier to pump lots of plastic into the seas without any consequence well, I mean, I there should be if you got serious money. legislation of this kind of uh, eco- ecological crimes and the same as if an individual did that i mean the, it's uh, it's easy to do in, in Turkey. If you pour water off the back of your boat with toothpaste in it, you're going to get a fine in the marina for that. There's no reason that same principle couldn't be extended to to all companies. Is the, the, uh, the microbeads as well, and the plastics are in the sea. They act as magnets for a lot of the other pollutants. So you, so they're enriched with uh, mercury and PCBs. And so when the birds eat them, they're also magnifying the amount that they're taking in. That's interesting. This bioaccumulation goes right up the food chain. So, <laughs> is the feeling uh, on the Faroe Islands that the hunting of whales and maybe even the birds that they hunt is going to end at some point? And what's going to be the reason for that? Is it going to be the the, the mercury aspect and the pollutants, or is it going to be that they're going to be stopped doing it by outside influences? I think. Most of the people that I spoke to, and I can only talk of this totally, obviously, but there there are some who resist, uh, who say that it will carry on. Uh, you can see characters in the film believe it will never end. Um, 
but a lot of people believe it will end simply because uh, because of the mercury has uh, scared a lot of people from eating it. Also because of uh, pizza, some of them will say specifically pizza. Really? Is, is, it, well, is it quite a new thing up there, pizza? <laughs> well, it's quite a big thing. The people, the availability of other food certainly makes a big difference. But then there's also um, some of the most avid hunters will tell me that people now up there have more and more jobs where you can't just run away from your desk and go to a whale hunt all day people have to work and that's a very different way of life than 50 or 100 years ago so there are just the societal changes as well but i actually remarked at that i was um i was telling my my dad about the uh about the film like explaining the the different conflicts in it and that was the one thing that i yeah, I thought it was quite precious that where there's the, the the one guy there and he's I think he's on the phone speaking to somebody and he's trying to get someone to come out with him. And just like you've said, I guess back in the day when the type of work was different, when they knew there were whales coming, everybody came down. But now it's becoming increasingly difficult to get people to be involved because they simply can't leave, which is another sort of bite of, of tradition which they're, they're losing because of, I guess, the, the modern world. Mm. Uh, now, I wanted to ask, there's two questions I want to ask, actually, slightly unrelated. When, when they catch the whales and they are divvying up the meat, how does it work? Because you see the guy um, talking about how many people are involved, how many boats were involved, and then he starts talking about who is allowed how how much meat. How does it how does it actually work? I found it quite interesting. <laughs> it's a very complex system actually, where every whale is measured um, and divided according to your role in the hunt. So if you're on a on a boat, you get a certain percentage, and if you're if you're the person who spots the whales, for example, you get the largest whale or the two smallest whales. Um, there are a lot of rules. <laughs> and regulations on this, which are a source of uh, some antagonism in some areas of pharaohs on how it's divvied up. Because um, obviously also in the capital, there are a lot more people. So, um, But there's a very complex set of rules. Is it, is it only the people that are involved in the hunt and the boats that get the meat? Is, is that it? Um if you are at the hunt, you have a right to a share. And if there's surplus, it goes to, say, the nursing homes or to to those who couldn't be there who want some. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you see in the film Sea Shepherd's involvement and you see them on the, the beach. And I was just wondering how much of an effect, other than their global presence and obviously it being put in the press across the world what's going on which obviously does have a big effect what kind of effect are they actually having on the island uh, when they're there because you see during the hunt that they are obviously trying to block the boats and there's people on the beaches trying to stop the hunters but the the police arrest them almost straight away there's a very heavy danish police and military presence there um to prevent any clashes and I think as well to protect the sea shepherds in some sense if there was a, a, a fight at a hunt in the middle of things because it would be a very uh, dangerous place to be, to be between the knives and, and yeah, the, yeah. the tips of the whales. Um, so there, was, there were very swift arrests if anything happened at the hunt. The effect, the presence of the sea shepherds 
changed over the years. I mean, initially, there was, was no hunting when the Sea Shepherds were there to uh, avoid trouble, but as it seemed clear they were going to keep coming back, it was uh, the, the attitude was more, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't, so we might as well uh, hunt. And there was enough police protection to allow it to continue. Um, what effect does the presence of them have? I, I think locally um, it's, it's increased the determination to defend the right to hunt and internationally their goal is to draw attention to it. So there were a number of celebrities coming to the island to try and mm -hmm. draw attention to the hunting. But then whether that would result in the the local situation changing, I, mean, I, I think it's fairly inconsequential to the Faroese if people are pouring hatred on the hunting because they've always experienced that anyway. So that's not a new thing. So that, that isn't going to tip the balance for whether they do it or not. I think that the, you know, the, the dynamics of, of the, the story that you're telling in the film is so, so complex and it, it made me think a huge amount about all manner of things when I watched it, when I watched it through. And I, I noted, and I, I'm guessing that this was a, a conscious decision, that with the exception of uh, the doctor who was speaking in English, Obviously, everything else is in their own native language with English subtitles. There is no English narration in there at all. What was your thought, thought process when actually putting the film together so that you could capture it in the way that you have? Well, I think the authenticity of the voice of the island speaking is something that I, I didn't want to trample on, really. Um, it's their story and they're telling it in their words, so... That's very important. Or the doctor does address the outside world. His message is to us. He wants the pharaohs to be seen as a canary in the mine and a warning to us all. He spent 30 years of his life doing this study and, and giving us this warning that we are all next if we don't pay heed, um, as does the ornithologist and puffin stuffer. Mm, yes, <laughs> he's an interesting character, that. They have very clear messages for us all, and uh, we have a tendency to, to ignore these things. As uh, Jens Child, the, the puffin stuffer, says, we, we ignore the, the warnings until it's too late and it's ruined, and then there's nothing that can be done. With regard to the, the making of the film, this has obviously been a massive project for you. Can you just flesh out what was involved over what period of time and you know the difficulties in putting something on this scale together for you and your team and anyone else involved? Well, the project grew and grew. I, I didn't think it was going to take this long when I started it, but um, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting area to work in, this kind of creative documentary. It sits somewhere between uh, an art form and, uh, and journalism and between activism and objectivity. So um, it's, you're navigating through that as you go. And I know what I want to talk about with the film, but the, the route that we get there is, is unknown and things evolve, it's, re it's real life. And of course, to try and capture the intimacy, to give the, the depth of insight, which, which I want to see, uh, takes a lot of time and is 
forever humbling how much people allow you into their lives to do that. It's a very intimate process. We are, we're, um, we're there in the family home with them. So yeah, it takes a long time. And, and this issue particularly uh, had been polarized into the Sea Shepherd or the anti-whaling versus the whaling debate. For me, there was this other layer of the top of it, which was how we all live with the natural world and what what we have done. And it, it's the consequence of our actions that are washing up on the shores of the pharaohs. So there were a lot of different layers to, to intertwine on this story. So and to be to be true to the local story and to be fair to the local story, but while while talking about that that larger picture. And how many how many years has it been from start to finish for you? Um, five years, four years of filming, um, not continuously, about 53 weeks of filming. Wow. We, you don't know when the whales are going to come or where they're going to come. There are 17 different designated hunting bays. They have quite a oh, very strict regulation on, on where you can hunt the whales. And they're scattered all over the archipelago. So uh, we spent three and a half months and in that time there was one hunt. So it's a waiting game. Wow, well, that's serious what, dedication what an to the cause. Incredible calls, journey. I mean, that is a serious amount of time in your life. Yeah, it's um, well, it's a beautiful place to be. There are worse places for yeah, sure. There is, yeah. Yeah. It's not the cheapest place in the world to film as a low-budget documentary maker. How, but, uh, how were you flying there most of the time? Were you? We we drove there with all the crew. We basically packed up shop in in Edinburgh got in a van there used to be a ferry from scotland from from the north of the mainland but then also from shetland at different times but they cancelled that two years before we started making the film so we then had to drive about two thousand kilometers with all of the crew and kit right round from edinburgh right round to the north of denmark hmm. uh, and uh, then get a ferry for three days out into the atlantic over there so it was a it was a kind of a five six day journey to get up there that's incredible so, like, we had that we had the the truck loaded up um now i know that you're a little bit green i i know that your film you just said at the beginning is going to be shown in edinburgh in um, next month is it this month this month um how do you how do you go and see that i mean can you get tickets or i mean yeah i think their their tickets still available um they're going fast they're quite limited um they are uh, well they're on the edinburgh film festival uh, i think there'll be a link in the podcast perhaps yes, yeah, yeah we will absolutely we will. Yeah. Um, yeah get them from edinburgh international film festival website and and after that if uh, if people aren't lucky enough to go how will they be able to to see it well, hopefully it will be in cinemas and on television in the UK very soon. Oh, that would be tremendous. It's in the year. so. I, I, I did comment this morning, and I, the first thing I said was, I hope this is going to be on TV so, <laughs> so more people can see it, just because it is a fantastic uh, film that you made. Oh, thank you. It's, it's amazing after all this time to have audiences... Uh, digesting it i was trying to avoid a pun but <laughs> yeah um, you know you really do you do have to digest it though, because there is so much going on in there and it's not a film that you can necessarily watch lazily i mean part of the reason is that you you have to you have to read a lot of what's going on because they're speaking in their native language uh, but like you said i think that adds so much more to it and 
because you're appreciating the tone of their voice as as they're speaking and you can feel the emotion in in a certain aspects of it where it's relevant um but no i'm i'm really looking forward to actually seeing what the reaction is as i'm sure you are uh once it gets out in the wider public domain i'll certainly be looking out for it to watch it again i i might even look if i can see to go to edinburgh because i was actually planning on going to edinburgh the following week oh you were weren't you yeah so come oh, on down <laughs> Yeah. Um, to move away from that film, uh, which is The Islands and the Whales, to go to an earlier film you made, just talk about this briefly, because I found this equally as fascinating, which was The Guga Hunters of Ness. Just tell people what that film was about. You did talk about it very briefly earlier, and we'll put the link uh, to the trailer of that as well. Um, well, I set sail to find a story in the Outer Hebrides, I wanted to talk about the uh, the, cha- the changing world there. I felt that things were, were, on a, were on a cusp in some of the smaller communities. It actually started out with a film about crofting and the changes to crofting. Um, and I, I met the Guga Hunters and there were the 10 men who had exemptions in all the European and UK legislation on on uh, wildlife preservation, these 10 men were allowed to go and hunt 2,000 gannets every year on one particular rock out in the North Atlantic. Um, and this was amazing to me that there was, first of all, there was even the exemption had been put into everything. It, it continued and it had continued unstopped for centuries, except during World War II, I think, is the only years that they didn't go in any recordable memory. So. Um, they of course said no way you're not allowed to film it they hadn't let anyone film it for 50 years and uh, eventually uh, persistence <laughs> won over and uh, my, my brother and I both grew up sailing my, my father's a, a seaman and uh, we'd both done a bit of ocean sailing and so the, the hunters said if you can get to the islands yourself then you, you can film us so, really? so that's what we did we chartered the boat and uh, put ourselves through the hell of almost continual gales and uh, touching hurricanes at some points uh, in some very very uh, messy seas up there and we went up there for three weeks and, and we, we captured we captured the hunt on, on camera and uh, BBC Scotland commissioned it and it was on television and played at Glasgow Film Festival and then went, went around the world to various places. Is that available somewhere now? I've obviously seen the trailer, but not the full film. It's available on the Intrepid Cinema website. Oh, brilliant. Uh, and there's a, a page on Facebook for The Guga Hunters of Ness, which is what the film is called. Oh. It's, uh, it's available on Vimeo. On Vimeo so. Oh, okay. That's good. And we'll stick all the all those links in. Another absolutely fascinating story, and I, I like the idea that uh, you were allowed to do it, but <laughs> you, you had get to there. get there. <laughs> <laughs> There's some behind the scenes footage on on the website as well, I think, which is uh, some comedic relief at what we went through to do it. <laughs> uh, just to leave these specific films uh, behind, and talk about how you got into doing exactly what you do now. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating uh, life to lead. It's, it's brilliant to make film and capture these special stories. We can certainly relate a little bit to that because it's something that we love to do. What, is, what was your break into doing what you do now, Mike? Um, well, I, 
I'd grown up doing a lot of uh, photography and, and, and writing, but um, I, I was uh, I was working as a as a lawyer actually, and I hadn't given up the photography and the writing, and that took over, and, and documentary film suddenly became the apparent way to to explore the world and to to talk about it. And I think that um, film is such a, a powerful medium for for change and for understanding the world and the fairy islands was quite a good example of many ways of, of what was important to me was not to to demonize a place and a story but to to, to understand it and we we live i think right now through a real precipice moment where we can act and and we can make a change and quite frankly if we don't we're going to be in a very serious situation so being passive in the faces of, of, of a lot of what we're, we're confronting at the moment is just really not an option. So you just you felt in, uh, compelled to take the jump, obviously, as a full-time lawyer to to embrace something that you had a passion for. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I was maybe meant to be a bit more free-range than uh, than than cage-fed. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was uh, happy to get out of the office and go onto the sea. <laughs> And I know that uh, you must be totally consumed right now with promoting this current film, but is, what is next for you? Can you see, have you got plans after this is over? Um, yeah, I actually started a, a few projects during this one, so it wasn't solely this one for five years. Um, so um, I can't really speak of you them You can't yet, tell but, us. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's one in, in Greenland and uh, there's one in, in America. So uh, Brilliant. So we'll, uh, I guess people will just have to keep an eye out on your, your website and your social media feeds to find out what, what on earth you're actually up to. It's all, uh, there'll be, there'll be uh, sneaky, sneaky hints on Intrepid Cinema's uh, Facebook page, I'm sure. Brilliant. Some behind-the-scenes photography. <laughs> Mike, it's been fantastic to speak to you today, and uh, I genuinely thoroughly enjoyed the film, and I, I really hope that people yeah, take and, the time to th watch th it. Thank you for, for letting us watch it. Yes, very privileged that you let us see it uh, prior to the release That's here in this country. So, It's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, it's nice to hear, hear your thoughts on it. Thank you. Thanks very much for your time. I think that was an interview that pretty much anybody would be intrigued by whether you're into the, the countryside and the hunting fishing type topics that we often cover or whether you're just interested in things in general um yeah i would yeah. encourage people who d wouldn't normally listen to something like this give them the link for this podcast definitely it's such an interesting story this. and you can you can follow all of this uh, all the links are online uh, mike said at the end intrepid um cinema and yeah, follow them. And when the film comes out for national release, really go and see it. Yeah, I believe it, it, it's uh, going to be in cinemas yeah, around is. the country. It is going to be on TV at some point. Really, honestly, go and see it. It's worth it's worthwhile going to see. Even if you wouldn't normally watch something which has a lot of subtitles and is mostly not in English. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of English in it, but the vast majority of it's in fairies. Don't let that put you off because it's a fantastic watch. With that out of the way, we've got more for you. It's yeah, not we're, over. we're bringing you another guest. But before we do that, we're going to tell you how to win the head torch that we yep. spoke about at the very start of the show. And it's very, very simple. So listen up. So this head torch here, all you have to do 
in conjunction of our new website, you have to go on the website, which is www.thepacebrothers.com. It will also be in the description. And you just have to subscribe to the website, which is on the main page. All you have to do, scroll down to the bottom, put in your email address, hit subscribe. That's it. And that is it. And then in two weeks' time, we will pick from the list of people uh, that has subscribed. and Do a random generator again. Yeah, we'll just do a random generator and you will be possibly the winner. So subscribe. So it's very, very simple because we quite often get people commenting saying, I don't know how to do it. How do I enter? Well, you probably haven't listened properly. You probably haven't listened. So visit our website, www.thepacebrothers.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and hit the subscribe button. It'll ask you you for your email address. That's it. Simple as. That's all you have to do. No effort really involved. And most people have email addresses nowadays. I think so. So this isn't excluding people on YouTube either. No. So that's it. And now we have Laura Bingham. We do indeed. And she is doing some incredible stuff cycling. I don't think I could cycle for as long as she could because my ass would go numb. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that that's your only concern. (laughs) No, I mean, she's doing a seriously incredible uh, adventure right now. Yeah. I'm slightly With no en- money. I am slightly envious of her because she's going to some of the most beautiful places. I mean in the the, world. the pictures that you that she's putting up are absolutely amazing. So, listen to what she has to what she's getting up to and then follow her, follow her adventures and we will get her back on the show when she's finally finished and back in the UK. And we're actually going to try and speak to with uh, some of her fellow riders that she's been riding with on the way. Enjoy. Well, Laura, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the show. Would you be able to tell us what you have been doing? Because it's quite an incredible thing what you've been doing, actually. Uh, Yeah, so about three months ago, I arrived in Ecuador in Manta on the coast, and then I cycled through the Andes. I crossed the Andes twice, going into Peru over the sort of into the rainforest, into the Amazon, then crossed the Andes again to get to Lima. And then my partner had a bike accident, so but this he was, then uh, left. Cho, was it? Yeah, yeah, he got hit, sort of hit by a car, and then the bike got run over. So um, all of that we did without any money, but we were collecting money along the way. So if people wanted to give us a coin or two, we would accept it. And then when I left Lima without Cho, I... Um, I vowed not to touch money at all. So since then, I've been cycling for a few weeks without touching money at all. And then I intend to cycle all the way to Argentina, which is another three and a half thousand kilometers um, without even touching money, so not collecting it. So, so no, no a- money. That's quite incredible to be able to do yeah. those kind of distances, relying, I guess, mainly on people's generosity. Yeah, like um for example like i haven't paid for food at all in the past three months i haven't paid for anything in the past three months um but it's weird because i find a lot of food on the floor like i found 64 tins of tuna on the floor and like in a box that had really? fallen off a lorry um i found loads of wafers i found watermelons uh yes so sort of for um i was cycling along and this chicken ran to the road and got hit by a car so then i had to sort of kill it so the road in itself has been a really good provider of food um so just 
and I found crisps and loads of biscuits along the road. So it's always good to, it's, yeah, I found it's very good to keep my eyes open along the road. Um, but largely my food intake comes from the generosity of others where, but I do work as well. So when people ask to help, ask me to help, I'll help and pick quinoa or helpful trees or, you know, do anything. It's been a very interesting journey so what inspired you to start this journey i know that you've done quite a bit already in in your life in adventure terms but what inspired you to start this this one um well i i was living in mexico and then i sailed across the atlantic back to england and then when i got back everyone was really surprised that i just sailed having never sailed before and then i was like oh i kind of like this attention what else what should i do next um (laughs) And then I decided to cycle around the world. And then I wanted to sort of hold I wanted to hold the record for that. And then I decided that I was more about the adventure than the race. So I decided I decided just to cycle South America. And then I thought, oh God, loads of people cycle South America. How can I and then I thought I'd try and do it without any money because I'd lived in Mexico. I have this huge love for the South American culture. And I was so kind of out there. I really believed that I could cycle across the continent without any money and that the people would help me or I'd find a way to I'd figure it out. And so far I have. So far I haven't had to pay for anything. I haven't had to, I haven't been so hungry and so without food that I've had to buy anything. There's always been someone in the right moment that's given me a plate of food when I've been really, really hungry. So that's that's absolutely incredible so what would you say has been the highlights of the trip so far for you oh the highlights probably the jungle when we'd crossed when i'd finally finished with ecuador and come into the peruvian amazon basin the basin of the amazon in peru that was amazing because i'd been so hungry and so tired going through the ecuadorian Andes because it was so difficult to find food no one would really help us and arriving in Peru into such an abundant place with so much food and fruit and everyone was so generous giving me loads of food it was just this incredible high with so much food and so much kindness um so definitely the the rainforest in Peru and then all of the border crossings really are the border crossings interesting (laughs) There's like nothing there. Really? <laughs> I always expect to see like armed men wanting to search through my things um, or asking me loads of questions about what I'm doing, where I'm going, what I'm carrying, who I've talked to are really, really interesting because there's just nothing there. It's just sort of a bridge and then I have to find immigration on both sides to get the stamp in my passport and um, and that's it. That's That's... A, so... What would you say to people that were wanting this kind of adventure that you're doing right now? How would people go around about doing this? Uh, making a decision and then acting on it. It's it's, it's as simple me, as that. that you just simple. you just made that decision and you said I'm going and it's just going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And just not allowing any doubt in your head to to come in and say that you can't do it and you're not able to do it. You've literally got to ignore everything in your head every every doubt and just book the plane ticket and go and figure it out along the way but I do suggest that it is 
dangerous out here so always traveling with a companion because um I think traveling alone is just a bit too dangerous on this type of expedition on a bike it's um well as as, think... as you've already proven with uh, the accident that you you've already been in mm-hmm. uh, I mean was so... the bike the bike I saw the pictures it was pretty messed up the bike yeah he um it was awful because I uh, I was cycling along and I heard this awful screech and um, it was one of those screeches where I I stopped the bike and I thought just before I turned around I thought I'm gonna see a dead body that like no one could have made it through that kind of noise alive and um, as I turned around he was on the floor next to the car and I thought oh god okay he's not under the car that's fine and I ran to him. And he was sort of moaning and groaning, so I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. So I ran back and got the camera and uh, to film it all. And uh, the bike was just destroyed under the car, and it had to be had to be welded back together. But thankfully, he literally didn't have a scratch on him. He um he fell off the bike, got up, and as he got up, he went to jump out of the way, and then the car just caught him on the corner and just flung him out out of the way. So he was very very fortunate. Not to have um, been seriously hurt. Absolutely incredible that he came away with with no injuries as such. So when is this going to end for you? When I reach Buenos Aires. Okay, I, um, when's that going to be roughly? Yeah. Hopefully about two and a half, three months. I get married in September. On the 3rd of September, I get married. So there's a very small <laughs> window there. I can't exactly So have you time. planned the wedding beforehand or are you leaving that down to Ed? I'm leaving that down to Ed pretty much. <laughs> he's um, Yeah, he's he's planning the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it'll be a surprise for you when you come back. I mean, yeah, I am um, I plan Have you got any future things that you have already in your mind that you want to do next? Uh I want to go and live with tribal people for a bit. I want to sort of spend a sort of 3 to 4 weeks living with tribal people, sort of learning about how they live and all of their culture. And because um, a lot of tribal people live a much more spiritual life. And I think that's a very, very interesting thing. And I want to explore that. So that's sort of my next, my next desire, if you, if you will. Oh, but, that's, that's incredible. And I know you're documenting this. I know you're taking pictures and you said you're filming it. And I've seen the pictures of you with the camera. Uh, are you after the trip you're going to put it together is it going to be out anywhere for people to see or is this for your own personal documentation no uh the same production company that does ed's programs um ed's marooned programs is producing this so they're pitching it to various tv stations and fingers crossed we'll get a commission and someone will like what they see and you'll see it on tv Oh, that, that's that's awesome. And how is um, Ed enjoying cycling with you? Mm, he's enjoying it. He's, um, Ed, yeah, he's definitely enjoying it. The um, coming straight in and then climbing straight up the Andes, climbing four and a half thousand meters of altitude <laughs> is quite, is quite a task to, to suddenly come in and do. But he... He was cycling a much he was cycling much better than I was. I wasn't handling the altitude well at all, so he definitely surprised me with his fitness and capability and just climbing the Andes so effortlessly. 
that's that's one thing that you'd completely think about like i would completely not think about was the altitude that you guys were going to of course i mean you're crossing the andes <laughs> yeah this is the third time i've done it and um i'm fine like i'm i'm perfectly fine up until about three thousand meters and then i just get really tired breathless and it's awful because like i've been cycling for three months and you get to 3,000 meters and it feels like you haven't done e- any exercise in the past year and suddenly you're trying to run a marathon. Oh. And it's, it's so frustrating because you're like, I've just done all of this exercise and all of this fitness and all of a sudden I'm struggling and it's just not fair. <laughs> and it's probably not helping that you will not be taking on the nowhere near the amount of calories that you actually need per day. Uh, if you're not getting, you know, food every single day that you need? Um, it's thankfully Peru has been so nice that I've managed to stock up about four kilos of rice. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, it's annoying because we have to, well, because I have to carry four kilos of rice. It's yeah. a lot of extra weight for, for nothing. And anyone else cycling would just buy half a kilo every other day and it would be fine they wouldn't have to deal with that extra weight whereas whenever I see food I have to grab it and try and collect it and carry it for as long as possible and I'm also Ed will probably vouch but I'm very very precious for any nice food that I have like I found um, some chocolate wafers on the side of the road Okay, hopefully we can finish up. Are you there? Yeah, okay. yeah. Hopefully, Sorry. it's all right. Hopefully we can finish up. Uh, it must be your your internet just dropping out. Mm, yeah, it's 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 not the best internet here. Which is which is which is, which is understandable. But like uh, like I said earlier today, we we were having problems with our internet here. So <laughs> so England's not as you know great. As, yeah, as well, we... when you live in in like rural Scotland, like we do, you you either your broadband doesn't work or you have to have satellite internet. And then if you've got satellite internet, it's sometimes a bit temperamental, as you'll probably know yourself with uh, satellite equipment mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, it's sort of. And you can't be ungrateful for it either because you kind of need it. So you have to just say thank you for what you have. No, exactly. (laughs) Well, we want to catch you again once you've finished all this and talk about this in greater depth and we, and you know, start seeing your footage as well. Hopefully it'll all get put together and then it gets put on TV. I've, um, I've just put a, a video up on YouTube that you can watch and I've just edited another one that I'll put up in a couple of days to give you a little insight into how the days are here. But it's interesting, the crunchy critters, those insect things, I've just seen a photo on your Facebook. Yeah, yeah. 
before I um before I left to do this, my friends ordered a load of insects from Crunchy Critters, and they sat me down, and I thought I was going to do like a treasure hunt at my friend's house, but no, they sat me down and made me eat loads of insects, like <laughs> from beetles to tarantulas to scorpions, just to prove. That, that I couldn't do it or if I had to eat insects that it would be hard and I was like it's fine so I was just shoving all these crunchy critters in my mouth and they were like oh okay maybe you can do it uh, we, we like, were we were talking about eating insects on last week's show I think it was and mm-hmm. uh crunchy critters uh very kindly agreed to send us a huge sample of of stuff to take out when we're going on adventures and eat some on the show and um, I guess we're going to try and we'll try them out and and see what they're like. I have eaten some insects before, but not the variety that they're going to send. <laughs> they're not that bad. If they send you a tarantula, they're okay. But the bum, it's sort of like the big round bit at the at the back. It kind of it's almost like a chocolate yeah. kind of texture. It's kind of still kind of squidgy, whereas everything else, it's pretty well dry. Yeah, quite so crunchy. It's actually, not too bad. Mm-hmm. Like all of the mealworms and stuff, it just they just taste like spaceships without the sherbet. <laughs> yeah, no, I I thought I thought that would be the case, especially with the crickets and uh, and so mm. on. But yeah, um, dry, they're pretty good. How can people follow you? Uh, people can follow me follow me on my social media accounts, so on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, um, and that's just Laura Bingham nine three, or they just type in Laura Bingham and they'll find me. Um, I've been putting up photos every other day, so and the odd video. So yeah, well, we'll we'll put the the links to it all in the description of this, so people can check you out. But thank you very much for uh, joining us for the, the short period of time, and we will get you on again when you've got better internet connection, and maybe even when you're in this country, we can even get you here to. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. But thank you very much. And that's it over for another two weeks. Remember that this podcast is released every two weeks on a Thursday. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, I, uh, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube. I think I've covered it all. Yeah, I? they're 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 all on there. Hit subscribe on all of them, um, and keep leaving reviews, please. Honestly, keep leaving reviews. It really does help. It made it allowed us to climb to number fifteen. I think last time I checked on the iTunes chart for outdoor shows. So if you keep leaving us reviews and keep downloading, then that keeps us high on the chart. And yeah, and thank you very much for listening. When we had so many listeners, thousands of listeners, new listeners join us from the Donnie Vincent show. So thank you for everyone that's joined us abroad. A huge majority of them are American listeners. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Uh, we've got some great shows coming up in the next few months. We've got some great stuff coming on. Uh, also, keep sending us suggestions for guests and shows because it, we do, we make it happen. Yeah, we love hear, we hearing. Love he- from we listeners. love hearing from you. So email info at paceproductionsuk.com and we will get back to you. We always uh, we always do. Sometimes we're a bit delayed if we're away, but we will try and get back to you. And we are going to be doing a full live show at some point. Oh, yeah, we are in the next 
month or two months uh, it's not gonna be too far away so watch out for that and the live shows we do on youtube so it's accessible to everyone if you don't have facebook last time we had so many people calling in it was a three-hour epic show. Uh, this was bear in mind this was only about three shows into us actually starting this podcast uh when we only had a few hundred listeners at the time and now we're at the thousands of listeners we're hoping that a few more, and we we had 500 people uh tuned in watching and literally the moment we put down the phone someone else would ring yeah. ring ring back it in, was really good which so is really cool we're gonna give you the opportunity oh, yeah, so we, we want to speak to you guys and girls again we want to speak to you and this time we're going to pick um a handful of topics. A handful of topics. Uh, last time we had a huge amount of topics. So we're going to pick a handful of topics this time. Just a hand. And we're going to talk about those. Yeah. And hopefully good. get some good good characters on. Yeah. If you're wondering how to enter the competition for the Bushnell headlamp that we mentioned at the start, then you probably weren't listening properly because we told you about seven eight minutes ago no, uh, 20 minutes maybe maybe 20 minutes ago in between in between our two guests yes so you're gonna have to go rewind rewind and we tell you it's very very it's simple very simple and you can get your hands on uh, on the the head torch which is very useful for everything because well, we use them head, all the time head torch is a an essential item for any kit bag <laughs> yes this podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. As we said at the start, they will be at the Game Fair um, at Schoon Palace on the 1st, 2nd, 3rd of July. And we will be there as well. So if you're going to that Game Fair, come and visit us, come and visit them and say hello. Yes. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>